0: Hello, my name is Veronica Rooney. And my name's Brooklyn Shively. And this is Resilience, a podcast sponsored by the College of Arts and Sciences and a proud partner of the 2021 semester program.
1: Resilience is a word used to describe communities bouncing back from tragedy, nations recovering from crises, the land we live on after being ravaged by natural disasters and the effects of climate change.
0: It's how we describe those who overcome adversity and thrive.
1: On this podcast, we will interview professors in the College of Arts and Sciences about how their work intertwines with resilience, exploring how populations rethink
0: systems to combat climate change, fight up racial oppression through youth organizing, or adapt to a booming media scape. We have a tremendous capacity to bounce back, or do we? Join us as we explore this year's semester topic, Resilience. In this episode, we continue our conversation with Dr. Grabbe about all of the ways that media packaging can affect our comprehension of the news and where to draw the line between free speech and censorship. Join us for part two of our interview with the phenomenal Professor Betsy Grabe.
2: So over the past uh, 40 years, uh, polarization has increased more dramatically here in the United States than in eight other countries uh, that's been studied, Um, those include the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, Switzerland, Germany, Norway, and Sweden. So every decade, uh, our negativity about other political parties and people who belong to those political parties Uh, has increased by about 4.8 percentage points. So at a very personal level, this means that when you identify with a certain political viewpoint and you're encountering someone who identifies with an opposing uh, political party or an opposing political viewpoint, that person is more different, more unlikable, uh, less uh, approachable to you now than that person would have been a few decades ago. And the question is, at what point does it become impossible for us to talk and listen to each other in a civil way? Uh, Those are for sure the core conditions for a functioning marketplace of ideas where the taste of the truth or our acceptance of ideas depends on the competition with one another. uh, And not on the opinion. Interrupt. But I have a question about that. Uh,
1: I was since you you've talked a lot about like the marketplace, especially in America. Yes. Um, I was wondering because of like the increasing investment in corporations like Fox News and CNN, as well as print news like the New York Times, capitalism has kind of forced journalism into more of a business structure. And I was wondering, um, since you did, since you were a part of a governmentally censored um, form of journalism, I was wondering if you see any similarities between that and if there's like Corporational censorship between, like, the very polarized political views on different media forms.
2: Does that question make sense? It does. Uh, Of course, you know there there are about uh, five to six media companies, very large uh, corporations that uh, own. just about um, all media that flow through our society. So the answer to that is 100%. Uh, yes, there is a very large uh, corporate um, underbelly to to information flow and the integrity of information uh, flow in in the United States and and worldwide for that matter. There are about Three to four hundred news outlets uh, that that are focused on providing reliable and um, unbiased, if, if you believe that can happen, <laughs> information. The rest are um, absolutely focused on um, a, a political uh, position or advancing a a, a political um, position and um, making money off of that. Um, of course, if you target news to a very specific um, group of people that have a very specific um, uh, political point of view, uh, you have um, a very nice market um, segment there, a nice niche audience to which you can then um, yeah, market certain uh, advertising. Right, so yeah, the breaking down of audiences um, into niche markets um, around political uh, opinions um, is is very much part of um, the the new circulation system um, uh, in the United States. So short answer to that is is absolutely um, yes. And, And the problem here again, it's not a very open um commercial marketplace right where there's really uh, fierce competition right and and then you layer on top of that you know how a, a closing marketplace um, uh, of ownership um, is is also inhibiting a, a true marketplace of ideas right because news flows from uh, so few um uh, sources through through the system so it's it's u- hugely uh, troubling and I must say social media and um, the internet has not made, neither of them have really changed that um, reality uh, very much
1: I'm curious if this ties into what you were talking about at the beginning of this um, podcast where new like news and media is largely, patriarchally misogynistically driven between like the sexualization of women and the negative shock value that most of our news outlets have does that is that intersectional at all with the corporatization of news as capitalism has also been founded upon these patriarchal misogynistic values do you think those intersect at all as it continues to go down this marketplace route.
2: I I think I want to encourage you to become a, a graduate student and to put that very very large picture together because it is a it is a very difficult and macro um, approach to to thinking about this. Uh, I think a very valid one. I can assure you, I do not have the pieces of evidence to to put this together in that way I think I've, you know, with fairly fine tweezers gone in and pulled out little pieces of it and gave a little bit of insight into uh, little pieces of it, Uh, but it's a it's an excellent question and it's a macro question and um, unfortunately I don't think there are many people who work on very large ideas like that. Um, It would take several careers uh, consecutively to to answer that question comprehensively with good evidence. Um, But I think it's a very valid question.
0: Kind of bringing this back around to um, not only the people who make the news and who filter the news, but the people that are consuming the news Um, In this new era of social media, um, people have had to adjust to kind of an overwhelming mediascape of information, some of which they believe they can trust, some of which they believe they can't trust. Um, Through your research, have you been able to gauge how well people are adjusting um, to the digital era?
2: Yeah, Uh, again, a very, very good question. And um, I often in in teaching, um, I ask students to uh, just step back and think for a few seconds about that magnitude of information flow. You know, I compared it to a massive garden hose um, uh, earlier. But um, the the most awesome way to uh, grasp how large that information tide is, um, is to to know that more information has been created during the lifespan of millennials than in the entire history of Homo sapiens uh, that predates them. <laughs> that is an absolutely breathtaking way to think about the vast um, flow of information. And yes, uh, to cope with that kind of um, yeah gush of information uh, takes adjustment, um, and it's very hard to to tell for sure if we're doing okay with that, right? And and the, within that information tide, um, the explosion of disinformation is is a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, It's actually disinformation and lying is is a very old phenomenon, right? But social media as a delivery system um, has unprecedented elegance, unfortunately. Um, So the resilience of human beings against this um, vast amount of information with disinformation tucked into it Um, It's not very obvious um, at this point. But um, let me mention a few areas where I do see hopeful signs. Um, First, I think uh, it's really interesting to take a look at the number of so-called slow media use movements. um, uh, Movements where people are encouraged to consume media more thoughtfully and perhaps consume a, a bit less of it. And that's a grassroots uh, movement. Uh, There's also enormous interest in media literacy, you know, from nonprofit organizations, um, citizen groups, individual parents. uh, We see very large uh, enrollment and interest in in media literacy courses in in the media school, for example. Uh, There's also remarkable progress in terms of, disinformation detection tools. Uh, It's a bit of an arms race. Um, The disinformation industry is uh, quite prolific, I would say, in designing tools and strategies for spreading false information online. Um, But detection tools uh, are being developed to identify these techniques. um, And um, these tools are available for free to the public. Um, I I have to just say that our colleagues here um, at IU IU, in the Ladi School are really international leaders in building tools that can detect suspicious uh, flow of information, and um, ordinary citizens have access to them and and can use them. Um, There's also advances in social science research to understand human vulnerabilities um, at cognitive levels, things like our individual thinking styles uh, or our belief uh, networks that we belong to or our media use patterns. Um, These things all uh, make us more or less resilient uh, to to false information. Um, And um, So with growing knowledge, um, we can proceed on two fronts. We can empower people with media literacy uh, and detection tools. And on the other level that I think is inevitable if we want to succeed and, uh, yes, be resilient, is, is policy. Yes, regulation. (laughs) So, you know, media platforms have not shown lasting commitment to uh, self-regulate, you know, to filter harmful information flow um, through their platforms. Um, I would say what I see from them is at best um, sporadic attempts. Um, And it will be very difficult for us, nationally or globally, uh, to design and impose policies uh, to regulate false information Um, because it's so closely tied to our first amendment rights. Uh, The question is though, should someone have the right to disinform uh, members of a society uh, to the point of extreme polarization, uh, violence, or fatal health uh, consequences. Um, And so I'd say for sure, um, the social fabric has been been stretched uh, by false information flow through media. Um, But, you know, fortunately also, um, I think human societies have been known to um, behave a little bit like spandex. Right, Uh, it can stretch. Um, I I do worry that we see a few small tears, but I'm optimistic um, that grassroots community action in collaboration with science and um, careful policy could um, tame the tides of current um, and, and future infodemics.
0: Thank you to Dr. Hamburger for discussing his work with us today. The music for the intro and outro is Wrote This Letter, Instrumental, by Justin Anthony Adams and Sebastian Barnaby Robertson, provided by Universal Production Music under a non-commercial license. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Resilience, a podcast by Themester.